0: When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great Rescue. This is episode oh, this is episode 12 of our study, Exodus: God's Great Rescue, and we are we are... Following Moses, he has been commanded by God to go rescue the people out of slavery in Egypt. And he's decided that he's going to go do that. He's resigned himself to the fact that he needs to follow God. He has no choice. Of course, he has no choice. So he goes and asks his father-in-law and tells him that he's going to go back to Egypt to see if anybody's still alive. (laughs) Which is interesting because he's told to go back. I mean, I guess, right? If you're... (laughs) I mean, maybe that's one way you settle it in your mind. It's like the next step is, well, I'll go to Egypt and see if they're still alive. Because if nobody's still alive, if in the time that I've been gone, all the slaves in Egypt have been killed, then this is really a moot point. I don't need to go and rescue these people from Egypt. (laughs) So um, I'll just go and see if they're alive. It's like taking the next step. It's rationalizing in your head what, what you think the next step should be. And he's resigned himself to follow God. But one of the things that he's put out there as a hope is that maybe when he gets to Egypt, they're all dead. And he doesn't have to. Uh, of course, he doesn't want them to be dead. But it certainly means that he doesn't need to then rescue them from slavery in Egypt if they're all dead. So he's going to tell his father, in law I'm just going to go back and see if they're alive. And Jethro tells him, go. I wish you well. And he puts his two sons and his daughter and his wife on a donkey. Have we read that? I think we haven't read that yet. Let's let's read that real quick. Um this would be Exodus four, verse 19. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. So he has the staff. This is the, the staff that can turn into a snake. It's this, the one that should convince Pharaoh that he is from God. He throws it on the ground, turns into a snake. If that doesn't work, then he picks up blood, he throws that on the ground, uh, and if that doesn't work, then he's he's got uh, one more miracle uh, to to pursue. But with all of that, God's uh, God's going to try to rescue these slaves out of Egypt. Now, um, it's interesting that he takes his wife and his sons to do this. I I. We calculated that it's about, what, a 20-day journey or a 10-day journey to get. It's not that far. It can be done. Um, well, I think it was about 200 miles. And 200 miles, if you walk 20 miles a day, which is doable, it's 20 days, if or a 10 days. If you can walk 10 miles a day, it's 20 days. So it's it's not that far, but it is it is a treacherous journey. There are probably paths. There could be robbers. There could be all sorts of animals. I mean, it is a treacherous thing. I'm amazed that Moses takes his wife and his sons with him. What does that mean? If I were going to go on a 10-day journey to risk my life in front of Pharaoh, I'm not sure I would take my wife and my sons. But on the flip side, perhaps I do want to take them because maybe I'll get back to Egypt and I will I will not follow God. I'll chicken out. And if I'm going to chicken out, I can't go back to Jethro because I already told him about it. Uh, so I have to maybe, maybe if I can make a life in Egypt and maybe I can do something now that I have a wife and children. I don't know. I do find it interesting that he takes his wife and his children with him. I'm not sure I would have put them at that risk. But that's me. This is Moses. I The other thing is, is that I'm not sure I would want to be gone from my children for that long. So. Maybe Moses thought he was never coming back and he wanted to take his, uh, his wife and, and children with him. I don't know. But we're going to continue reading. This is Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. So this idea that God is telling Moses that I will harden Pharaoh's heart is a very difficult section of scripture. And it's it's um, it's used as a proof text uh, for people that uh, particularly there's a uh, when John Calvin, a hundred years after Luther, there was a guy named John Calvin. He started Calvinism. The Presbyterians today are all Calvinist. Uh, Luther and Calvin would not have seen eye to eye on a few things. But one of Calvin's. Theologies that he that he picks up in Scripture is that salvation is a hundred percent God's work, which is true. God God does save people without anything that we do. It's all of Him. It's all His work. And Calvinists, uh, John Calvin, took that to an extreme to say that you are already predestined to go to heaven or you're predestined to go to hell. From the womb, like God knows from the womb what he's going to do, which seems kind of unfair. Like you're going to be born and you're going to spend your whole life and then you're going to die and you're going to spend your whole eternity in hell. And you have absolutely no choice or no say over this. God has already condemned you to this path forever. And at some point that that. Um, idea that God does this was softened by another guy named Ar- Ar- Arminianism. Uh, Arminius, I think is his name. Jacob Arminius, I think is his name. And he kind of took the total different. Like, no, man has some say in what he's doing, right? Man, it is completely unfair, completely unfair that you could be born and live your whole life and be condemned to for eternity in hell and have absolutely no say over this whatsoever. Like, can't God change his heart? Can't he see that this person is trying or whatever, uh, you know, that there's something there? And so Jacob Arminius said, no, 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 it's not that. You know, man has some ability to, 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 to convince God or to uh, have some say over God or to, to at least have a fighting chance, like in life. But but Calvin, who is a very strict, uh, I'm going to say strict, but kind of a harsh interpretation, really believed that as he read Scripture, that this is what Scripture says, that man really has no control whatsoever over salvation, none whatsoever, that you are born and you die and all the things you do on earth are kind of predestined and you really don't have any choice. And so... The other, th- you know, the other thing is, is that inside, and I've thought about this a lot. Think about, like, think about the actions that you do. You woke up this morning, you, maybe you had breakfast, you took a shower or whatever. You do all these things and you live in a pattern. And what causes you to break from that pattern? Well, you do have free will, but do you really have free will? Or will we always as humans respond to Will we always respond the same way to the stimuluses that are given out to us today? If 80% of your life is routine and 20, and a lot of people say it's not even that, like a lot of people think that like 80, 90, you know, 95% of your life is routine and it's only the 5% in the fringes and the margins we really actually make a choice. There are some people that believe that one of the ways that you can become more fully human is to intentionally every morning say, OK, what are the patterns that I'm doing and how do I want to break from those patterns so that I can try something new or do something new or or expand my, you know, my consciousness more or whatever like that? There, there are people that do that. But for the vast majority of people, and this is the this is the thing you just wonder about. Like once you start working in your job, you wake up, you know, you eat breakfast, you go to your job, you work, you come home, you do the same thing. You do this over and over and over again. It becomes such a pattern that you don't really, I mean, even though you have free will, you never break apart from free will because you, you've you already habitualized yourself into the same things every day. Um, how much of our life truly is free will? That's a that's a very, very interesting point. Do dogs have free will? Most Animal trainers will tell you that dogs only respond to stimuli, like they're gonna see a, a a rabbit run across the road, and they're gonna they're gonna follow that rabbit if they're if they're bred to follow that rabbit, they're gonna follow the rabbit no matter what, or if they're bred to not follow rabbits, they watch the rabbit go across the road and they don't follow the rabbit. Like it's it's kind of genetic in them to what they're gonna do, and does God understand the human brain so well and understand that we don't have free will, that we always respond to the stimuli around us. And if that's the case, if it's a hundred percent that you don't have free will, then, then God already knows kind of in your life, how you're going to respond to the stimuli and whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff in um in our lives that we just don't necessarily focus on and do intentionally. A lot of stuff is just response to stimuli around us. So, but 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 here <laughs> in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord tells Moses that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart And he will not let my people go. So, this has nothing to do with Pharaoh doing this work. It's it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart to do that. And this then leads us to believe that God does do harsh things. Another proof text of that would be Jacob I loved, Esau I hated from Genesis. Where even before they were born and they start living their lives, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that's another instance where God like predestined a destiny for each of those children. And here he's predestining a destiny to Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh doesn't have a choice. Because the Lord is telling Moses, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, th- these are difficult texts in Scripture, when God does something that just doesn't seem fair at all. But He's God, and He's in control of the universe, and He holds everything in His hands. We are these little tiny creatures. Who are we to tell God what's fair and what's not fair? I mean, that's the big picture. But what happened in the in the 1800s is that the church was debating this whole thing, like. Is pre- what is predestination, and does God predestine everything, or does God n- predestine some things, or not predestine other things, or does God foreknow everything, because He's so smart and so intelligent that, like what we know, if we have a breed of dog that we've trained through Pavlov, and we're walking down the street, we know that if a rabbit comes across the street, that dog is going after that rabbit because that's how he's bred and that's how we're trained. Now the dog may not know that. The dog just is responding to stimuli. Well maybe as us to to dogs, God is to us. Like God knows how we're going to respond because he's so super intelligent. He controls everything. Is that is that how that works? And there was a debate in the 1800s about what, you know, what does it mean to be predestined? <laughs> and it was a it was a very very challenging debate for the church in the United States. And it almost ripped the church apart because it is such a controversial, it was the number one controversial issue in the first 50 years of the 1800s. It was this debate and people were vigorous about this debate and and angry about this debate and clinging to different things about this debate. And this was the debate of the early 1800s. Just like in Europe, after the time of Luther, uh, that there was this huge debate, 1517, he nails the theses on the, on the church door in Wittenberg. There was this debate about how much control and power the Roman Catholic Church has and how much the state has and if we have to follow both. And, uh, and how do we, now that the printing press has produced Bibles, can we use the Bible as the source of our knowledge of God as opposed to relying on priests and the church? And that's what that was the big, huge debate of Luther, because up until the point of time of Luther, the only person that would interpret Scripture or even talk about Scripture were the priests in the Roman Catholic Church. And if you weren't a priest, then then you did not touch that. Whereas Luther said, no, let's let's get the Bible into everybody's hands. Let's train them to read the Bible and then they can make their own judgments about what God would say about this or that situation and it created this you know huge it it set the path for the individualism that we have today before that it was all collectivism you you didn't see yourself as an individual you saw yourself part of a society or part of a collective and um which is not bad it certainly has you know lots of people in the world have, have throughout history have seen themselves as part of collective and not as individuals but now We know that we're individuals, and so we have an individual type of relationship with the world and with God and all that. But that is only a brief period of time too. Before, before 1517, before the Enlightenment, uh, we did not see ourselves as individuals. We saw ourselves as part of the collective, and the collective was important. The most important thing that you could do as being a part of collective is to support the collective, and if you went against the collective, they would cast you out and you would no longer be part of the collective. And then you would die because you were not connected to anything. And if you were not connected to anything, you died. There was nobody else was going to take you in. And of course, psychologically, emotionally, you were outcast. How could you possibly survive? And so you died. Um, So you did not. The last thing you wanted to do was to be cast out of the collective And so anyway, but now we're individuals, we can live, we can survive being cast out of the collective. We can survive just fine. I mean, we may not have the happiest life and the most wonderful life, but because we are social creatures, but at least we can survive. Anyway, that, so this is, this is just to say that God does things sometimes that just don't make sense. When God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So he won't let my people go. What he's also saying is that I am killing Pharaoh's firstborn son and I'm killing all the other sons. I'm going to bring down the wrath of my plagues upon Egypt, including the killing of the firstborn sons. And all of this is going to happen because Pharaoh does not let my people go. But I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he does not let my people go. And that, if my friends, if you do not think that that is uh, unfair, if, if you if you believe that that's, that it's fair for god to do, do that then then you're healthy but m- the vast majority of people would say that's unfair why would god do something like that i can't believe that god would be such a beast to condemn pharaoh and the, all the firstborns of egypt to this life but but this is what god says that he does he hardens pharaoh's he hardens pharaoh's heart the uh, and the things like this, this happens in scripture periodically where we look at God and we say, uh, you know, that doesn't seem fair. Like why? Why is God allowing cancer um, in this particular person or why is God you know, allowing this hardship? Why did God let that, you know, this catastrophe happen? All these different things. And we as humans try to make God look good by saying, well, maybe he has, you know, if, if uh, you know, the cancer is going to spread and that person is going to die, but five years later, they were going to be horribly killed, you know, by a person, you know, knife stabbing or something like that. And it was going to be a lot more painful or something. I mean, we try to rationalize why God would allow something to happen. And we always try to put, you know, a good spin on God. Like, well, God's not all that bad, but there are periods there are places in scripture where you just sit there and you look at it. If you, if you do the truth, if you look at it truthfully, you say, this is not fair and it does not make God look good. And this is one of those points. This is not fair and it does not make look, God look good. So how do we as Christians rationalize that? Well, you can, you can say, well, maybe you know, there's a greater purpose in all this and all that sort of thing. And there is a greater purpose. God does have a purpose that we don't know but a lot of times we look at these things and we just say, I don't know. I don't know why God would do this. I don't know why God would bring about a catastrophe. I don't know why God would bring cancer in a small kid. All these different things, I don't know. I just don't know. But what we cling to is that God is good, that God knows what he's doing, that he has a plan, and that when we're in the kingdom of God, that he wraps his arms around us and carries us through a very difficult world uh, until we meet him face to face and we live with him in eternity, where things like this don't happen anymore. Things like this are all a result of original sin. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they unleashed upon the world this whole idea of knowledge of good and evil and disobeying God and having choice. And because of that, then God periodically does things like this. He, he does what he's going to do because he's going to do it. And he allows things to happen because he's going to do it. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, this is a, it is, Luther would say, that what we have a tendency to do is we'll put a mask on God. You know, God is when we see when we see things like this where God actually is hardening Pharaoh's heart and it doesn't make God look good, instead of just looking at God and all of his godness and, and the difficult things that God does and just looking at that, instead, we'll take a mask, you know, like a theater mask or something like that, and we'll put it on God and we'll try to make God look good. And we are always trying to we're always trying to give excuses for God. Well, God did this, God did that, and all that. And Luther says that part of being a theologian, what he calls a theologian of the cross and understanding why Jesus had to come into this world is because sometimes we have to take the mask off of God and look at him directly as he is. And understand that the only solution to that is by him becoming flesh and dwelling among us and, and saving us. That is, um, L- Luther would say, he, the other thing he would say is that a theologian of the cross calls good, good and evil, evil. Whereas a theologian of glory, which is somebody who tries to put a mask on God, calls evil, good and good, evil. And Jesus did say, I came, I am the truth, the way, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And part of part of our calling as humans in this world and as Christians is to always follow the truth wherever it leads us, even if it leads us to make God look like sometimes like a monster. We have to do that. We have to be followers of the truth. It's the only way we can live in this life is to seek the truth and to love the truth. To love the truth is to love Jesus. Because God did harden Pharaoh's heart. There's no question about it. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. All right, that was probably longer on that than I thought I was going to go. But um, I think we'll end it there. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, Gracious God, sometimes you do things that we don't understand. Uh, But for that, we cling to you and know that you are good and that you have a plan for us that is good because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.